Welcome to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. Hello, and thank you so much for welcoming me here. Um, as I was telling some people, this is my first time in Oklahoma, but I've spent the most time in Oklahoma thus far in your town. So, uh, so it's the best of Oklahoma. Is that fair to say? I heard you have a rodeo that's quite big. So um, I wanted to begin today. Uh, so I want to talk about the Eucharist in your life and the way going to Mass shapes your life. But I wanted to begin in prayer with one of the great Psalms in the church that's often linked to the Eucharist, Psalm 23. So let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So again, it's a joy to be with you and to talk about the Eucharist and your life. The Eucharist that happens on this altar, the presence of our Lord, that then leads you out from this space to make your whole lives into a sacrifice of love. Before he was Pope, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, wrote a work called The Spirit of the Liturgy. And he said something that's often very challenging for us Americans and us American Catholics. We sometimes think about worship as what we do on Sundays. We go to Mass. I grew up in East Tennessee, right? And uh, I lived in a little town called Merrillville, and everyone in Merrillville went to church on Sunday, right? And that's what we did. And then they went to brunch, and then, uh, then that was it for the week, right? It's something we do on Sunday. But what does this uh, great, intelligent, holy man say about worship? He says the goal of worship and the goal of creation, the whole world, 
are one in the same. Divinization. That's a word that means that all of the world is to be filled with Christ, with God. Every part of your lives are to be filled with God. Right? For in the Christian view of the world, the many small circles of our lives are inscribed within the one great circle of history as we move out from God's exodus, God's coming out, God's sharing himself with us to our return gift of love. Friends, our whole lives are to be worship. Right? Every part of your life, Christianity, Catholicism, isn't like, all right, here's a private event and that's enough. No, it's everything. You are to be persons who live the Eucharist every day of your life. How, though, do you learn how to do this, right? I mean, all of us know it's difficult to... I mean, people tell me all the times things, right? Perhaps a doctor once told you something like, you need to cut down on salt or sugar or that delicious beer that was just shared with us all. And it's one thing to be told this thing, and it's another to pick up the habits and learn to do it. And in fact, the Mass can teach us to live this, to live Eucharistically, if we pay attention to it, if we come to it and seek holiness through our the encounter with our Lord. So I want to introduce us tonight to a way that our lives can become inspired by this encounter with Christ by attending to the seven parts of the Eucharistic prayer, right? When, when the priest prays the Eucharistic prayer, He's not just making up random words. Those words have a long history, a structure that can teach us something about Christian life. It starts with a moment of the preface or a thanksgiving. It continues to the sanctus or the holy, holy, an act of praising. Then the epiclesis the calling down of the Spirit upon those gifts. Then the institution narrative, we remember what Christ has done on that night before he died and he becomes present to us. We then remember all of this again and offer it back up to God, offering ourselves in return. We pray for the whole world through intercessions and then we have a doxology that ends in silence. So I want to go through these movements tonight and see how they can form us to live this Eucharistic life. So I want to start with the preface. At the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, there's a moment where we're invited to remember something very particular that God has done. But we don't remember this just as some event in the past, right? When my family gets together for Thanksgiving, especially my wife's side of the family, they tell all the old stories in the exact same order. Uh, that's uh, something I had to learn when I married into this family, 
I would hear these stories for the rest of my life. Or until they're dead. I don't know what will come first. Hopefully, their death. But, okay, so... Um, no, because what we remember, friends, is alive and active, right? When we celebrate Easter in this parish, you're not remembering that once upon a time in a distant world, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. No, he is the risen Lord now, today. He is risen. He is active. He gives himself here. So we remember all these things about him because we hope he'll do something new for us. My favorite, um, so this, uh, one of my favorite, one of these prefaces is that of the first Sunday of Advent. For he assumed at his first coming the lowliness of human flesh, and so fulfilled the design you formed long ago and opened for us the way of eternal salvation, that when he comes again in glory and majesty and all is at last made manifest, we who watch for that day may inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. We remember that our Lord will return and we take up a posture of hope that this is the moment of his return. All our prayers have the structure. They help us and invite us to see that by remembering what God has done and is still doing, we can take up a hope that God will act again. One of my favorite prayers in the church's year is that for the Annunciation, the opening prayer, or what's called a collect prayer. Those opening prayers have a structure, right? So I grew up in the South myself, and I didn't know how to pray. All my evangelical friends knew how to pray um, spontaneously. It was, the, you know, dear Jesus, dear Father God, here we are, and um, I didn't have a structure, but it turns out the church has a structure for these prayers. That these prayers start by addressing God. You, who did this thing once upon a time, do it again. Right? That's the structure. So here is how it works here. Right? This is the kind of formation we should come to each of these prayers listening to and expecting. O oh God, who willed that your word should take on the reality of human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. O oh God, who willed that your word, the second person of the Trinity, should become man, right? He should become an infant in the womb. Before I, my son came into my life, I thought being a baby would be awesome. I mean, think about it. When you're hungry and you're a baby, people bring you food. Some of you might be hungry right now, but no one has brought you anything. Well, they did in there. Um, 
right? People just randomly smile at babies, right? At least in some of the cities I've lived in, like Boston, no one smiles at you. When you're tired, people carry you around, right? Um, I went for a walk today. I was very tired and no one picked me up. But think about it in another way. The word, the one who created the whole world, became an infant. He gave up even the capacity to speak. He couldn't speak. The word was speechless. St. Augustine says this about the word being made flesh. The word becomes infant, the one who cannot speak, out of love for us, to be in union with us. If I was God, I wouldn't do this, right? Um, I'd be like, no, is there a more like powerful position than infant? Right? Is there a CEO of a corporation? Uh, is there a royal position I could take up? No, congratulations. There is a baby you could become. Right? But that's the problem. We don't think about God aright. God, for those of us who are Christian, is the one who empties himself in love. He gives and gives and gives. And so the prayer continues. Grant, we pray, that we who confess our Redeemer to be fully God and fully man may merit to become partakers, sharers in his divine nature. We, in preparation for this Mass, are to become a sharer in God's own nature. Not through being more powerful or assuming more position, but through emptying ourselves in love, right? God is alive in every time that we empty ourselves in love and confess him as God and man through our own lives, we become more like him. We become the one who bent down in love for us. That's the thanksgiving. Each, pay attention to them at mass, each of them are little occasions for you to contemplate and think about these things. The next thing I want to do is the sanctus, or the act of praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. If you really think about it, praise is the most countercultural thing we can do. Praising God, right? Because... To praise someone means that you actually admire something about them. You see something in them that you don't possess. And you're not bitter, you're not angry about it, you're actually rather joyful about it, right? What does sin do? Sin blames. Sin, uh, uh, at Mass every week, right, we say, uh, it's my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault, right? We're meant to say it's my fault, but what I prefer to say really is it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your most grievous fault, right? I want to make myself like God. 
right? That person's in, that person's out, that person doesn't matter, you annoy me, get out of my way. I know that that's harder to do in a small town uh, where you have to see each other all the time. But also that means the grudges live a lot longer. Um, when we praise God, the thing we're doing, when we sing a hymn of praise, when we do any act of praise at mass, what we're saying is we are not God. You are. Not you, but you are. You're God. And I need, in order to be happy, to be a creature fully alive, need you, God, to be God. St. Augustine, in his famous autobiography, The Confessions, starts the whole thing through talking about praise. He says, great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy to be praised. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we humans, who are due part of your creation, long to praise you. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Friends, whether you sing the Sanctus, holy, 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 whether you speak it quietly on a Tuesday or Wednesday morning, whether you sing it out of tune, and perhaps some of you do, you in fact are acknowledging every time that God is God and you are not. And that's the best news in the world, right? And you are practicing, you're invited to make that praise into the whole song of your life. Everyone should see that praise. The epiclesis now, or the epiclesis. What does that word mean? It's a Greek word. It just means calling down upon. So when the priest says, right, um, send your spirit upon these gifts like the dewfall, right? Send your Holy Spirit upon these gifts and make these gifts different than bread and wine and make it like the dewfall. Now, where does that reference come from? It's really important to know this. So that reference is from the book of Exodus, where the manna, the bread that is sent down from heaven, comes like the dewfall. It comes as gift. Now, let's go back into scripture and think about this moment. God has just rescued Israel from Pharaoh. They have crossed through the river dry shod and their enemies, the Egyptians, have all been killed. They are at last free. Free to be free. But it's hard to be free, isn't it? It's hard to learn freedom. And so what does Israel do? Two weeks after this, they begin to complain. Right, I wish we were back in Egypt where at least we had stew, flesh pots. 
this God, Moses, you've introduced us to can't feed us. And I have to admit, if this, if I was God, that's when I would have said, okay, go back. I'm sure they'd be happy to see you. Right? But thank God I'm not God. Instead, God gives bread from heaven, what the Psalms refer to as the bread of angels. It comes as pure gift, right? They didn't earn it. In fact, they opposite earned it. But it comes as pure gift, the dewfall, and you're only allowed to take enough for a day. Enough for a day. Because God wants to teach Israel, and therefore us, that God's going to keep being there. God is going to keep providing. You can trust in him. And so we call down the spirit upon these gifts that they don't be, that they're no longer ordinary bread and wine, but that they might become the gift beyond all gifts. Jesus Christ himself who comes to feed us. Friends, to go to Mass is to learn a new way of seeing, a new way of beholding the world as gift. I am aware that the world is not entirely gift, or at least it doesn't seem that way. I'm sure some of you here have endured sufferings, children who you've lost or who've left the church, spouses who've been sick, perhaps even this own community here, seeing how once it got so small and you were afraid that even this space, this place that mattered so much to you might disappear and be gone forever. Where is God in this? Where is God in this? God asks us to wait and to see. There's a reason why you've been invited to do more here, to think about Eucharistic adoration as linked to this gift, right? There's a, a German theologian um, named Jan Heiner Tuck, and he has one of the most beautiful insights I've read on Eucharistic adoration and how it can transform our life. He writes, to the extent that we allow ourselves to take a moment with Christ, our life can become other, different. Everyday life, which appears unspectacular, mundane, and distant from God in its routine, can be transformed by pausing before the signs of God's nearness par excellence. Friends, to pause here, to pause in that chapel, and to look with love upon the, what seems like those ordinary gifts, is to ask the Spirit to come upon you that you can see his presence with the eyes of faith and that you can then see his presence in every moment of your life. 
joys and sorrows, griefs, and yet celebrations. I remember um, thinking about this uh, last year, uh, about a, year, over, a little over a year ago, I was asked to go home uh, because my grandfather was dying and I'm the only practicing Catholic in my family. And so that means that I'm in charge of all the Catholic things, funerals and last rites. And so I called the priest and I ensured that uh, Father Peter would come over and give my grandfather the anointing of the sick and viaticum, his last sort of encounter with Christ in the Eucharist. In this man who was extraordinarily weak, who meant so much to me in my own life, uh, this man who I will always remember as this strong man who used to pick me up and uh, bring home pizza, this man who had been reduced to a shell of himself, stood up when Father Peter came. And he saw, he, he received, I was there as he, for the very last time received the body of Christ. And I could see in this single act of love, right, this single act that he had, his whole life of fidelity to God, not an easy life, by the way, right? Um, his mother died when he was uh, seven years old, his father when he was 12. Almost all of his siblings died before he was 30 years old. Uh, they lived very poor in New Jersey, and um, the, it was all sort of tragic deaths. And here he was at the end of his life, having lost his spouse four years earlier, and yet there, in this single act, I saw the completeness of fidelity, of Christ's very presence come to him and come to all of us, to accompany him along the way. Friends, that's why we go to adoration. That's why we behold the mystery of love here so that we can see it in the most hidden of all places. And friends, that's the great promise of the Eucharist. At the heart of the mass is the institution narrative the remembering of Christ's sacrifice. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. The Gospel of Luke describes so much of this as a moment of gift, right? Of God's desire for us. Um, the Gospel of Luke begins the moment of the Last Supper with this beautiful phrase, with desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you. These are Jesus's words to the disciples. And these are Jesus's words to us. With desire, I have desired. How much desire he had to give himself for us. And think about how he gives himself to us. He gives himself in the form of bread. And what happens to bread? It's broken, it's fragmented, it's given. He gives himself in the form of wine that's poured out and it flows 
and it's given. We Catholics believe that these elements become Christ's very body and blood. That is what is given to us. And it's given to us in this way because the Lord once again makes the sacrifice of his life available to us here and now to transform our lives. When he was no longer just Joseph Ratzinger, but when he was Benedict XVI, he wrote in one of his letters on the Eucharist, by placing his gift in the context of the Passover, the great moment of God's gift giving to Israel, Jesus shows the salvific meaning of his death and resurrection, a mystery which renews history and the whole cosmos. The institution of the Eucharist demonstrates how Jesus's death for all of its violence and absurdity became in him a supreme act of love and mankind's definitive deliverance from evil. Our Lord Jesus Christ endured the worst evil, the worst of sin, the worst that human beings could do. He is the God-man rejected by his fellow men, despised, spit upon. He responds not with violence, which I would, or anger, which I would, but through gift, through love. He shows to us that death does not have the last word. Love alone is credible. Divine love alone defeats the powers of death. And he does this through the act of gift, through the act of sacrifice. And this is the love that's given to you every time you approach the altar. He gives himself to you to be in union with you, to make your life too into a sacrifice of love. Think about it. Have you ever heard anyone say to a young child, you're so cute, I could eat you? Hopefully they're not being literal. What they mean is you're so cute, you're so wonderful, I wish I could be close to you. The Lord wants to be that close with us, to invite us to let our lives be united to his life in this sacrifice of love. I have, with desire, I have desired to celebrate this supper to you. Even now, every Sunday, the Lord has that desire for you. We don't go to Mass as Catholics just because we're obligated. Sometimes that's important. We go because with desire, he desires us. All right, we're nearing an end. The anamnesis and oblation. The Greek word anamnesis just means remembering. A special kind of remembering where we remember in such a way that what we remember becomes present. But you already know that. So when at Mass, 
we say, and we remember your most glorious, right, resurrection and ascension to heaven and your second coming, we mean we remember that God is very much so still alive and active. But then in the Eucharistic prayer, we turn and we offer, right? We have received, the gift has been given, and now it's our turn to offer. We offer you, right? We offer to you these gifts back to you. We offer to you, you back to you. When I was young, every Christmas, my parents used to give me a little bit of money to buy them something for Christmas. In retrospect, now as a parent, there is a level of absurdity to this because I always came home with things that I now surely recognize that my parents did not want, right? Like they knew what they wanted and I was like, here is soap. And my mother was always like, thank you so much for this soap that I didn't want, right? But what is it, right? It turns out as a parent, what you really want is the freedom of your child's gift of self, to remember that they can give. What you delight in is not the soap. You delight in their delight. You delight in their delight. We sacrifice this because the Lord wants us to delight in the gift of ourselves. He is the one who is sacrificed. The priest offers this sacrifice, but we too are part of this sacrifice, meant to be given, meant to make of our lives an act of worship back to the Father. St. John Paul II reminds us this, and I think especially us who are lay faithful, we are not mere passive attenders of an event that we're watching. We are to participate in this mission of love, this sacrifice. St. John Paul II writes, the lay faithful are sharers in the priestly mission for which Jesus offered himself on the cross and continues to be offered in the celebration of the Eucharist for the glory of God in the salvation of humanity incorporated into Jesus Christ, the baptized are united to him and to his sacrifice in the offering they make of themselves and their daily activities. During the celebration of the Eucharist, these sacrifices are most lovingly offered to the Father along with the Lord's body as worshipers whose every deed is holy, the lay faithful consecrate the world itself to God. When we offer up the saving victim to the Father, when we offer this up as the church, the Lord wants us to bring our whole selves along with it. Your work, your ordinary married life. And some of you know that ordinary married life is very sacrificial. Your joys, your sorrows. If you're struggling with one of your kids, the Lord does not want you to leave that at the door. 
and pretend everything is happy. The Lord wants you to bring it to him. The Lord wants you to bring this offering and to offer it back and it will be given back to you in a way that surprises you. I remember uh, my wife and I, we were married several years and we were in Boston and we really wanted to have children and we weren't able to have children. And I remember going to mass and I was very angry at God. And in some ways I was tempted to stop going to mass at all, right? I was like, fine, you didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm going away. I didn't because I'm Irish Catholic and the guilt is extraordinary in my life. Uh, it keeps me from doing all sorts of things I shouldn't do. But it was funny, as I actually kept going to Mass, I began to learn to understand that this, even this aspect of my life when it was offered, became itself a kind of gift. It opened my wife and I to think about opening our home in another way to kids. And we've adopted our son who's 10 and our daughter who's six, not because of any extreme virtue on our part. We just wanted kids. And the Lord gave me back all the more for this offering, right? I, if, if, if one day the Lord appeared to me and said, Tim, you could have 12 biological children or you could have Maggie and Tommy, I would say, Maggie and Tommy, they are my everything. It opened me up to suffering of others. I suddenly noticed at my parish that I wasn't the only one suffering. Sometimes Catholic churches are places where people pretend everyone is happy, but we're not all happy all the time. It opened me up to the appreciation of the gift of adopted kids. And I have endless conversations with my undergraduates who are adopted each year about the gift they are to their parents. Friends, bring it to the altar because the Lord wants to give it back to you. All of your joys and all of your sufferings, all of your frustrations, everything, offer it back up in love. Offer it with the Eucharist. Bring your full self to this altar. but don't stay here. The Eucharistic prayer continues on, right? And we begin to pray for the world. We pray for the church, the Pope, the Bishop. We pray for the living and the dead. And we pray for all those who are baptized into Christ. We are to leave this space and to go out and to make the world into a space of Eucharistic love. St. Thomas Aquinas notes that the final end of the Eucharist, its ultimate purpose is nothing less than charity, love. You must love one another. On Holy Thursday, the night we remember the institution of the Eucharist, we sing this hymn, where charity and love are, there God is. 
the love of Christ has gathered us into one. Let us exult and in him be joyful. Let us fear and let us love the living God. And from a sincere heart, let us love each other and him. We pray for the world because we are persons who then are committed to concrete charity, love of one another. We did not call ourselves together. We did not create this union. This parish is not gathered around something like um, the Constitution of the United States. We, the people of the, of this parish, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice. No, we are gathered together because he chose us. You might not have chosen to belong to each other. Some of you, and they're probably not here, may not even like each other. But the, the church is love, a communion of love. This Perish is meant to consecrate every crack and corner of this neighborhood, of this town, back to God. Everything. Every single person you encounter should know that you worship the Eucharistic Lord and that you long for a world filled with God's charity. And it starts by loving one another. Loving one another with Christ's own love. That, in fact, is our priestly vocation. It's why Benedict XVI wrote again in a letter on the Eucharist, a Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. A Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. You can practice this a lot by proclaiming to every person through your lives, through your words, that you love the Lord. You can practice this by helping those who are in most need of your help. The Eucharistic prayer, though, concludes not with more words, but what's called a doxology. Through him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Friends, we go to Mass not because the rest of our lives will be going to Mass. We go to Mass as a practice for heaven, for being with God, for being in silent adoration of our Lord. It's heaven will be a space of total love, of total communion, of total Eucharistic love. That's our destiny. And it's amazing that here in this little corner of Oklahoma that a little bit of heaven 
comes down to earth every single time you gather to celebrate the Eucharist. Heaven itself comes down to dwell with you and with everyone, even people who root for Texas. Well, maybe not, but uh, uh, in every little corner of the world, the Lord comes. And one day, we'll join all of them forever and ever, beholding the face of the beloved in the great communion of saints, of those who have become, as St. Augustine, a song of total praise, a song of love. This is what it means for your life to become Eucharistic. And the good news is you can start practicing it this Sunday and then do it for the rest of your lives. And I'll pray that those lives are long and fruitful uh, lives, lives uh, of, of true joy and gift. Um, thank you so much for welcoming me here uh, to be with you on this Monday night. Uh, and thank you and um, many prayers for you as you become a people infused with the love of Christ through the Eucharist.